This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, let me thank Under Secretary of State for Economic Growth Fernandez, United States Trade and Development Agency Director Ebon, and Acting Under Secretary of the Treasury for International Affairs, uh, Balkul, uh, for being here today to discuss an incredibly important topic, one that has been an increasing focus of mine over the past several years how the United States can best use our economic, trade, and development tools to promote our foreign policy objectives and improve the lives of Americans and others abroad beyond traditional government-to-government -government tools. In the 21st century, geopolitical power increasingly rests on geoeconomic foundations. With a powerful bully pulpit, China uses its economic might to spread its preferred authoritarian governing method around the world and pressure the developing world to choose between our system of values of self-determination, respect for human rights, and openness, or their system and their values of autocracy, repression, and censorship. We must not lose sight of the fact that democratic values and good governance also include economic transparency and competitiveness. While the United States is almost always the security and diplomatic partner of choice for countries around the world, we are not always their economic partner of choice. That's often because China's <coughs> most effective power is their international economic toolkit, using their own form of economic statecraft to punish, coerce, and undermine the sovereignty of other nations. Or because China will offer, excuse me, or because Russia will offer energy supplies far below market value in exchange for political support. Take, for example, the cases of Lithuania. After opening a Taiwanese representative office in Vilnius, Beijing reacted by immediately downgrading diplomatic relations with Vilnius and preventing Lithuanian goods from entering China, effectively creating a trade barrier. They also denied them uh, critical supplies necessary for the production of their products. This is economic warfare, and it is a test for the West and the international community. We must stand with Lithuania. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses how the administration has pushed back against China and others' economic coercion. In this new era of strategic competition, it's critical that the United States government respond to these challenges. We have to ensure we are competitive, not just confrontational. We have to invest in American workers and our own economic prosperity here at home. And we have to channel and focus our economic statecraft programs that are fragmented across the United States government. That's why earlier this year I introduced my Economic Statecraft for the 21st Century Act. It provides a comprehensive plan to confront the anti-competitive and predatory nature of China's international economic policies. And it will allow us to lead through our values by strengthening our supply chains with reshoring and nearshoring strategies, by achieving our energy-related sustainability goals, by fostering cooperation in multilateral institutions, and by building global resiliency. However, this legislation is not meant to be the end of this economic statecraft initiative. It has to be a start. I know the ranking member just introduced his own economic statecraft bill, and I look forward to working with him on further developing this agenda and passing the critical legislation we need in the coming months and years. As part of our multilateral strategy, one of the best tools we have to counter China's predatory economic practices is to leverage our influence at international financial institutions. 
Yesterday, I introduced the International Financial Institutions Mobilization Act, which uses the United States votes and leverage at international financial institutions to build resiliency and growth. It works to prevent future debt shocks in emerging markets and developing countries that are facing increased economic instability. And it includes an increase of resources in our own hemisphere at the Inter-American Development Bank. In recent years, Latin America and the Caribbean have seen devastating impact from COVID and alarming erosion of democratic governance, rising poverty and massive forced migration. With so much at stake, it's critical that we expand the resources available to the Inter-American Development Bank. That's why I've worked continuously over the last years, two years, to advance a capital increase for the IDB. And I welcome the growing cooperation from the Treasury Department on this crucial issue. Now, let me just, uh, as an aside, I won't name the country, uh, but one of our hemispheric neighbors, who very much wants to be aligned with us, but is facing, as many others in the hemisphere, rising energy costs, almost to the point uh, that it can create an explosive situation, rising food costs, the strictures of their IMF obligations, which they have been meeting, and at the same time, uh, no help from us. But China's willing to give them $600 million with virtually no strings attached, at least no economic strings. Maybe there will be other strings attached. In the face of that, if I am governing and taking care of uh, the people in my country, and I'm going to have uh, social unrest because people can't afford the gas uh, to get to their job, uh, or the food prices uh, cannot be afforded at the end of the day to achieve the goal of feeding my family, as much as I want to be with the United States, I'm going to go ahead and probably make that decision. We need to come together and think about how we help, particularly to these international financial institutions, including the IDB, but also the IMF. We should be talking to the IMF, not about anybody relieving their debt burden, but certainly about transitioning it during a period of time of pandemic, food prices, and rising energy prices. That is a toxic, explosive mix. So we are at an inflection point. From emerging technologies to securing supply chains, from the threat of economic coercion to global infrastructure gaps, from the transition to a serial carbon economy to development, finance, and economic leadership of the G20 and the international financial institutions. American leadership is vital to a peaceful and prosperous world order. And so I look forward to hearing from the witnesses their thoughts on this legislation, on this agenda. I'm happy to hear what they like, what they don't like, and how uh, our toolkit can be improved. With that, let me turn to the ranking member for his remarks. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Leading, uh, promoting, and, and protecting uh, economic freedom should be a major goal of the United States. The embrace of free market principles, inclusive economic growth, and trade makes Americans more prosperous. It is also imperative that we defend against countries like China and Russia who place commerce at the service of their political objectives. Uh, I would associate myself with the remarks of the uh, chairman that this is an incredibly important subject, uh, particularly in the face of the fact that 
we are competing with countries who do just what uh, I said, and that is use economics uh, to uh, promote their political objectives. I think the chairman has underscored that, and I know he's been very active in, uh, in this field, and uh, that's one of the reasons I've drawn the bill, so that we can work together to uh, craft a bill that uh, hopefully we'll all be able to get on board with and, and attack this problem, which is a serious, serious problem. We in America do business differently than autocratic countries do, and uh, that causes us uh, no end of problems, uh, not only for America, but also for American businessmen. We face severe economic challenges here at home, and many of our partners struggle with post-COVID economies uh, or political instability. Meanwhile, China is capitalizing on these opportunities to benefit itself through anti-competitive means, as uh, outlined by some of the remarks of the chairman. With this in mind, legislative and executive branch focus on international economic policy is absolutely crucial. Soon I will uh, introduce uh, the uh, Economic and Commercial Opportunities Network Act to help strengthen that policy. And again, I hope to work with the chairman to be able to uh, bring our two bills together to, to one where we can uh, have agreement and move forward with uh, the objectives that uh, we have in common. There are several key areas of, the, of uh, my bill I'd like the witnesses to explore uh, today. Uh, the first is strengthening the Department uh, of State's economic core. The private sector is key to market-based economic growth. However, our economic officers and their colleagues at other agencies are key to whether our economic and commercial diplomacy is successful. My bill includes provisions on promotions, recruitment, and retention, among other things. I'd like to hear directly from all three witnesses on the health uh, and the state of their workforce, what types of staffing challenges they face, and ideas for addressing these challenges. Next, I want to hear about energy engagement. I'm concerned that the Biden administration's immense emphasis on climate change is coming at the expense of our energy needs and those of developing nations. Most Indo-Pacific nations still want to work with the United States on oil and gas, but are finding their U.S. counterparts are not interested. Similarly, we must work with our sub-Saharan African partners. Energy infrastructure in Africa is nascent at very best, uh, without large distribution grids required for wind and solar. Africa's energy needs are significant, and a range of solutions, including oil and gas, are needed to power the continent and support economic development. With Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the President is finally waking up to the reality that the world will, by necessity, continue to rely heavily on fossil fuels for some time into the future. Be that short-term, medium-term, or long-term, we don't know yet. However, the State Department has not clarified whether it is able to work on natural gas and other uh, fossil fuels with partner countries. The Development Finance Corporation's self-imposed and arbitrary mandate on carbon means it cannot finance any future natural gas projects. I would like to, a clear understanding of we, what each of your agencies are doing on energy and what specific guidance and mandates you're operating under. Third, I expect the witnesses to lay out how each agency contributes to pushing back on anti-competitive economic behavior. My bill includes three new tools to tackle intellectual property theft, forced technology transfer, and unfair subsidies. That includes a novel reform to U.S. and antitrust laws 
Uh, so United States companies can take action against foreign state-owned enterprises engaged in predatory pricing. Finally, I'm in the process of crafting the bill on uh, cooperation with U.S. allies and partners on critical and strategic minerals. The U.S. must have a two-track approach to critical minerals, increasing domestic production and working with allies and partners. We want to hear from the witnesses how we uh, can work with allies and partners to provide secure access and means of production throughout the critical mineral supply chain, foster market-based incentives for joint investment, and ensure robust environmental standards. I also want to hear what each agency is doing on critical minerals. We continue to get very, very bleak reports uh, from uh, on my service on the Intelligence Committee and the Energy and Natural Resources Committees about yeah. China's monopolies uh, and near monopolies of minerals critical to the United States and allies and critical to their industrial base. Let me be clear, however. Working with allies and partners is not a substitute for expanding domestic development and production of critical minerals. Idaho and several other Western states uh, have a lot of these uh, critical minerals, but the U.S. government blocks companies from extracting and or milling these minerals. I remain very concerned uh, by efforts to erode our domestic mining industry and to rely solely on other countries for resources we, w that we have here at home. We must exploit both tracks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We'll start uh, the testimony. All of your statements will be fully included in the record without objection. We'd ask you to summarize them in about five minutes or so so the committee members can have a conversation with you. And we'll start off with Secretary Fernandez. Good morning, and thank you, Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Rich, and members of this committee for the opportunity to appear before you this morning. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rich, I appreciate the interest in the economic work that you've uh, discussed in the State Department. It's my pleasure to be here with my colleagues, uh, Acting Treasury uh, Undersecretary Andy Bacol and Director of the uh, USTDA, Eno Ibong. Uh, State works closely with our interagency colleagues to build a prosperous and secure global economy that benefits American workers, American families, and American businesses. The, uh, the economic work of the State Department is a vital part of rejuvenating rules-based global economic institutions and the U.S. alliances and partnerships of today and those to come, whether they be in Europe, the Indo-Pacific, the Middle East and Africa, or in our own hemisphere. As Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment, I oversee a diverse team responsible for developing international policies and cultivating partnerships to promote economic growth and prosperity and also address the challenges in a transparent, rules-based and sustainable manner. This includes teams across the, uh, the old, uh, my old bureau at, at the State Department, the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs, the Bureau of Energy Resources, and the Bureau of Oceans, International, Environmental, and Scientific Affairs, as well as a number of offices, including the Office of the Chief Economist, the Office of Global Food Security, the, the Office of Global Partnerships, and the Office of the Science and Technology Advisor. What makes the State Department's contribution to this goal unique is our team of ambassadors and more than 1,500 officers located in almost every country in the world. Uh, officers who work with host government to advance the administration's economic statecraft agenda across a wide array of, of issues from supply chains to artificial intelligence while leveraging U.S. global leadership to strengthen our domestic economy. These, these efforts are many. They include promoting commercial and investment opportunities for U.S. companies and workers, intensifying our efforts on energy and climate security and environmental sustainability, 
ensuring sustainable and reliable supply chains, improving health security and resilience, enhancing food security, expanding access to secure communications networks, and fostering innovation through robust science, entrepreneurship, and technology policies. Recognizing the important role of commercial diplomacy uh, and what the role that it plays in promoting U.S. prosperity, in 2019, the Congress passed the Championing American Business through the Diplomacy Act, uh, in which the State Department uh, has been involved. And, and we welcome the opportunity to coordinate this whole-of-government effort, and we will be releasing the first CAPTA report to Congress later this year. The CAPTA report, beyond creating an inventory of interagency, commercial, and economic advocacy efforts at posts, will also establish a critical baseline on U.S. companies' priorities and challenges and how we are working to support them. Since my confirmation last August, uh, almost a year ago, much of my work, uh, that's, and it's detailed in, in my longer uh, written statement, has centered around combating Russia's brutal aggression against Ukraine and its challenge to the international rules-based order, and also countering the People Republic of China's unfair economic practices, including economic coercion. In addition to these pressing issues, my office is central to coordinating the international COVID-19 response and building partnerships for resilient clean energy, semiconductor critical minerals, and medical and pharmaceutical supply chains. I look forward to discussing these and other issues related to the economic work of the State Department in greater detail over the course of, of this morning's hearing. Mr. Chairman and, and Ranking Member Rich, let me conclude by saying that I, I look forward to working with both of you, uh, as well as with the members of this committee in the years to come, on the initiative that I've described today that we will discuss this morning, and the challenges and opportunities that we are sure to face in the future. And so I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Well, thank you. The State Department hasn't taught you how to use all your time. It's a very amazing. I, I appreciate it. Uh, full minute almost back. Uh, Ms. Uh, Ebon, is, it, is that the right pronunciation? Yes, it Ebon? is. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rich, and distinguished members of the committee. Thank you for inviting me to testify today on the U.S. Trade and Development Agency's role in the U.S. government's economic statecraft. USTDA's mission is to support the development of high-quality infrastructure in emerging economies while creating U.S. export opportunities to the projects that we support. Emerging economies desire partnership with the United States because we offer positive alternatives for their development. In fact, USTDA offers a stark alternative to China's predatory practices. We build partnerships based on mutual benefit and trust, and we utilize our project preparation and partnership building tools to advance the shared priorities of our overseas partners and US industry. USTDA engages in the most strategically important stage of the infrastructure development cycle, when the technical and design options for projects are being defined. US companies perform all USTDA-funded activities. This is critical to American competitiveness. If we do not define the requirements for these projects, then our competitors certainly will. USTDA's tools are essential for structuring bankable infrastructure projects for international financial institutions. 
our engagement with them increases the likelihood of implementation for projects into which U.S. goods and services may be exported. Around the world, USTDA coordinates with like-minded partners to present positive economic development alternatives to those offered by China. For example, our partnership with Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has expanded our portfolio across the Pacific Islands, including in Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and Tonga. Of course, one of the best economic statecraft tools we have is the U.S. private sector, whose high-quality solutions are widely sought, but often come at a higher upfront price. When international tenders use lowest price as the primary deciding factor for award, countries like China benefit. This practice has long plagued emerging economies, leading to failed infrastructure projects and harmful development outcomes. In response, USTDA established the Global Procurement Initiative, or GPI, to train public officials on integrating life cycle cost analysis and best value determinations into their procurement decisions. GPI programs are increasingly sought by countries that want to acquire sustainable, high-quality infrastructure. Under the GPI, we are changing the rules of the game and promoting transparency. In the course of our work, USTDA sees firsthand the increasingly fierce competition from, uh, from China. In recent years, we have leveraged our tools, including training grants, to help level the playing field for US companies. For example, China's HMN Technologies, formerly Huawei Marine Works, recently made an offer to build a new subsea fiber optic system, cable system, that will carry large volumes of data from Singapore to France. Their main competition was New Jersey-based Subcom LLC. USTDA offered training assistance to the five countries involved in the selection process on the condition that they select Subcom. Their offer helped the company win a $600 million contract. Their technology will be manufactured in New Hampshire and provide a trusted new route for high-speed connectivity for countries in Africa, Asia, and Europe. USTDA's project preparation and partnership building activities are critical to our long-term competitiveness in the world's most strategically important markets. As a government, we can optimize our economic statecraft through a holistic approach where the value of our assistance is not solely measured by investment dollars. We must level the playing field so that US companies can compete. We must partner with like-minded allies. And together, we must lead the development of infrastructure for the benefit of billions of people around the world. This is how we can win. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, Mr. Balcol, is that the correct pronunciation of your name? Yes, thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Chairman. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Thank you, uh, Ranking Member. Thank you, uh, other members of the committee, uh, for the opportunity to discuss Treasury's international economic tools alongside my colleagues from the State Department and TDA. Let me state at the outset that the administration stands firmly with the people of Ukraine. We are holding the Putin regime accountable for its war against Ukraine and will continue to confront Russia at every turn. We are at a key juncture for economic statecraft. 
Together with our allies, we have leveled some of the most strongest sanctions in history, and the Russian economy has been significantly impacted. We are also working with the G7 and other partners to explore a price cap on Russian oil, to curb revenues to Putin's regime. And we are leading the way among our partners, thanks to action by Congress, in delivering support to Ukraine's economy. U.S. funds have been critical to maintaining basic services in Ukraine, including education and health care. Five months in, Russia's war has created significant economic and humanitarian challenges for Ukraine and beyond. Higher commodity prices are feeding into global inflationary pressures, with knock-on effects to energy and food security, trade flows, external balances, adding to social pressures in many countries. Treasury has been focused on supporting countries as they weather the shocks of COVID-19 and the fallout from Russia's war. Stronger, more stable growth abroad means a stronger economy here at home, and the international financial institutions are critical to this effort. Over the last two years, the international financial institutions have led the way in helping low-income and developing countries fight the pandemic and stabilize their economies. These institutions are vital to responding to food and energy shocks and the refugee crisis in Europe. They will also be essential in rebuilding uh, Ukraine. The administration is seeking authorization from Congress to provide up to $21 billion to two IMF facilities targeted at the poorest and most vulnerable countries, the Poverty Reduction and Growth Trust and the newly created Resilience and Sustainability Trust. Through the PRGT, the IMF provides zero interest financing to the world's poorest countries. A record $19 billion in disbursements during COVID has left the PRGT in need of additional funding going forward. Through the Resilience and Sustainability Trust, the IMF will provide countries with targeted financing alongside IMF programs to increase their resilience to energy shocks, pandemics, and climate change. These IMF trust funds provide critically needed financing and help countries undertake reforms to promote long-term growth consistent with the IMF's core mission. We look forward to working with this committee on this important request so that the United States can continue to lead in the global economy. U.S. leadership is needed to tackle serious long-term challenges to the international order, including those posed by China, as referenced by the chair and ranking member. The international financial institutions offer a high-quality alternative to China's development financing, which is opaque and non-concessional. We are engaging the multilateral development banks directly to step up their support for infrastructure development in line with the ambitions of the Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment. Treasury is also working to enhance debt transparency and sustainability. Around 60% of low-income countries are at high risk or already in debt distress. Our efforts will help facilitate debt restructurings and prevent future debt crises. We can continue to call for full and timely cooperation from all official creditors, including China, to help low-income countries that are requesting relief. Treasury is helping the international financial institutions adapt to the 21st century challenges. Pandemics, climate change, fragility, migration, refugee flows, these challenges cross borders and disproportionately affect the poor and vulnerable. We need development finance to better mobilize private capital and finance solutions at scale. At the Inter-American Development Bank Group, for example, we are ready to begin negotiations on providing additional capital to IDB Invest, the group's private sector financing arm, in line with a broader reform agenda for the group. Finally, Treasury provides technical assistance to help developing and transitional economies build capacity, a flagship tool that delivers mightily on every taxpayer dollar invested. 
I look forward to working with you, Chair, and the committee to continue to advance U.S. international economic leadership abroad and create opportunities for Americans at home. Thank you. All right, thank you all. We'll start a, a series of five-minute rounds. Um, you know, uh, there are other agencies that are not even here today at this hearing, Exum, uh, DFC, others, uh, and some suggest that our process of economic statecraft is so fragmented that we uh, cannot bring it together in a powerful way that maybe others engage in. What, what would you say to that, Mr. Secretary? Well, uh, thank you for the question, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an issue that we discuss internally, and the interagency um, um, discusses it quite often. Uh, I, I think there are both with USTDA and and with Treasury, we work every day and, and, and all of the time, as well as uh, with the Commerce Department, with our deals teams to try and promote U.S. exports and U.S. investments abroad. Uh, with the USTDA, uh, uh, we have worked with them in, in a number of, of cases where countries are, are, are looking to export uh, their products here and need, and need uh, approvals. Uh, the Secretary is the chair of the, uh, of the DFC, and we vet uh, their programs. Um, I, I will tell you that, um, uh, for example, in just, just recently, uh, we, we announced uh, the I2U2 partnership. President Biden announced it in, in, in Israel. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an effort by four countries, Israel, India, uh, the UAE, and ourselves, to work on projects. And one of those projects was a, uh, 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 um, an energy project, a, a solar and wind energy project in India that was where all four countries cooperated. That project came from uh, our friends at USTDA. Uh, they gave us the idea and we made it a reality. Well, so I, I appreciate that. My question, uh, since I don't have unlimited time, uh, is are we really bringing all of the elements of national powers it relates to economic statecraft together? Or is it so disjunctive that the ability to bring all of the benefits of it uh, might be better resolved if housed um, uh, uh, under, one, uh, under one roof. Uh, that's a continuing issue, uh, and, and I'm sure there's an interagency process, but I've seen those interagency process consider things to death. Uh, so uh, uh, something I, I want to continue to explore. Uh, I mentioned Lithuania. You are, in your written statement, you have Lithuania as a perfect example of what China does. Uh, to countries uh, uh, that ultimately don't bend to their will. Um, the European Union has been looking at creating some sort of mechanism to have a combined approach against the sort of thing we see China doing to Lithuania. Earlier this summer, former NATO Secretary General Anders uh, Rasmussen released a report calling for the creation of an economic version of the NATO Article 5 Mutual Defense Pledge in order to thwart commercial coercion by authoritarian states. What's uh, your view uh, of something along those lines of an economic Article 5, or how do we deal uh, with uh, pushing back uh, on the economic coercion of, of a country like China against those who are allied with us, have our values, and want to promote them? Thank you for the question, um, and, and thank you for your leadership on this issue. Um, many of the uh, many of the actions that we've taken to help Lithuania uh, came from conversations that our office had with yours. So that's uh, something we very much appreciate. On 
When China decided to punish uh, Lithuania for allowing Taiwan to open a trade office, uh, we decided that we'd seen this movie before and that uh, China had done it with a number of countries, Australia, Japan, Korea, and others. And so we decided to take a two-pronged approach, first of all, to support uh, Lithuania diplomatically, letting them know that they were not alone, uh, and letting them know that whatever their decision was, uh, we would support it as a sovereign, as a sovereign decision, but also to try and help them uh, confront the, the economic uh, fallout from, from China deciding not to allow Lithuanian imports into China from China cutting back on, uh, uh, on, on, on export credits to Lithuania. Um, I, I can tell you that uh, we found out that we had some tools that we, uh, that we uh, in some ways, we had not uh, thought about. For Exim Bank doubled the, the uh, export credits that, that, uh, that China had given to Lithuania. I have, uh, to give one example, I have, um, we have discussed the, uh, and I know it's been discussed, the Article 5 idea. It's an interesting idea. I, I, I think we're developing a playbook now, and it's, a, it's, a, it's something that we will continue to consider going forward. Yeah. Well, I'd like to see that. Mr. Bakul, uh, let me ask you, uh, should we not be using our voice and our vote at these international financial institutions in a more aggressive way? For example, we have these countries that, yes, they want to meet their IMF obligations, but they have the triple whammy of a pandemic, uh, the uh, skyrocketing energy costs, and uh, uh, increased, dramatically increased food costs. And unlike the United States, they're not capable uh, necessarily of meeting that. Shouldn't we be talking, uh, leading at the IMF to have a smoothing out period. That doesn't mean an absolution of, the, of whatever your obligations are. It certainly means you have to still meet your obligations, but a smoothing out period. So these countries can get through a period of time in which there's not um, uh, unrest. And when you're answering that, could you also answer, uh, many members of the committee have had concerns about special drawing rights at the IMF. Um, and uh, making sure that while we want to be helpful uh, to countries that need this type of help, that entities like Russia, Belarus, Cuba, Iran, Venezuela don't get access to it. Thank you, uh, Chair, for, for both those questions, which are, are very important. I think on the um, immediate impact of, of COVID and the fallout from uh, Russia's war in Ukraine on food prices and energy prices, you, uh, you have identified that uh, the current juncture is very difficult for many emerging markets and, and low-income countries. Over the last couple years in response to COVID in particular, the IMF has uh, dispersed uh, significant volumes of, of lending to its members, much of it early on in the COVID period uh, without significant conditionality as, as emergency support, recognizing that, that COVID uh, was impacting many economies uh, very detrimentally. The IMF over the last year and a half or so has, has been shifting to more traditional uh, lending programs for countries uh, that are based uh, on um, standard conditionality to help countries adjust to the various shocks that are ongoing. Uh, 
But at the same time, I think the IMF is recognizing that um, the social impacts of some of the price increases that we've seen over the last year are also meaningful and need to be taken into account as they work with, with their member countries. Therefore, you've seen in uh, a number of IMF programs that um, subsidies for uh, food or fuel are being accommodated to some extent and addressed through um, other policy measures to, to keep uh, social unrest um, under control, recognizing that, that that is a significant issue as we've seen in places like, like Sri Lanka. Um, on the uh, issue of SDRs, um, very important uh, question. We are uh, very focused on making sure that the uh, general SDR allocation that the IMF uh, provided last summer to all of its members uh, cannot be uh, used by um, bad actors who are members of the, of the IMF. Uh, there's several different categories here. Some, some bad actors uh, do not have uh, full recognition of the membership of the IMF, so they are not able to access uh, their SDRs. Other uh, bad actors, um, uh, we and our allies would uh, agree not to uh, convert their SDRs into usable currencies. And as you know, uh, Chairman, the SDR is, is not a currency itself. It is an asset and a liability uh, distributed by the IMF. Uh, so it needs to be converted to a usable currency to actually be used. And we would not convert uh, uh, SDRs for a number of bad actors, and neither would our allies. And then even if uh, some bad actors are able to convert their SDRs uh, to usable currency, of course, we have uh, sanctions programs on a number of countries, Russia most importantly, that would make it extremely difficult for Russia to actually be able to use uh, the currencies that it gained from, from uh, converting SDRs. So this is something we're tracking very closely and, um, and uh, doing our best to make sure that no, no SDRs can be misused. Senator Rich. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Under Secretary Fernandez, uh, the department recently announced the Mineral Security Partnership to work with our partners on critical mineral supply chains. And uh, certainly uh, that's an important thing and an important start. But like the chairman, I'm, I'm concerned with the fragmentation of our own government. Um, we, I wouldn't say that industry's in a panic, but I would say that industries, many of them, are deeply concerned about uh, uh, critical minerals and their ability to get them. China has as a policy, uh, it seems, to monopolize everywhere they can. Now, a good example of that is cobalt. I got a piece of cobalt right here, and it uh, came out of the ground in Idaho. And uh, we got lots of cobalt in Idaho and uh, would like to get it uh, in, into the process. The, the difficulty is you're, the, the announcement that the Mineral Security Partnership is to work with our partners. I'd really like to see the agencies of the United States government working together. When anybody tries to take this cobalt out of the ground in Idaho or any of the other critical minerals that we have, they're followed around by a parade of bureaucrats trying to stop them from getting the minerals out of the ground. Nobody, it seems like nobody wants to get to yes. Everybody wants to get to no. Uh, what, what, are you doing with, what are you doing with our own agencies? Uh, forgetting about the partners for a minute, uh, other allies. What, what are we doing with our own agencies to try to get this stuff out of the ground? 
Thank you for your question, Mr. Rich. Um, we, we work with the Department of, of, of Energy. We work with a number of the agencies. Our focus at the State Department has been with our international partners. And so uh, we share your concern. Uh, and the, the, the Mineral Security Partnership was a vehicle that we created together with some of our closest allies and partners to, to deal with the, with the concern that you've raised, that you've raised uh, to, to promote responsible investment in, in strategic countries uh, while following the highest environmental, social, and governance principles. And, and the reason we, we, we started this, this, this uh, investment vehicle, and, and we've, been, we've been getting great cooperation from a dozen countries that are members, uh, basically because they have the same concern. Number one, we know that if we are going to have a clean energy future, we're going to need to increase exponentially. Uh, our, our, our supplies of cobalt, lithium, and others. We also know that uh, the PRC uh, controls many of these minerals, and, and sometimes they either control 100% of the production of the mining, or they control all of the processing. That's a problem. And so what we need to do is to get our companies and our, our, our agencies to share information with our partners. Sometimes we're not getting this information in time, and so we, we've, we've already talked to our and we demarched our, our, our post to get us this information when it's actionable, then we're gonna talk about with our, with our uh, uh, private sector, with the, with the financial institutions and financing, and, we're gonna, and our proposition will be to the, to the mining, to the producing countries, is we are gonna engage in a race to the top. Uh, we're, our companies are not gonna compete in a race to the bottom. Uh, the mineral security partnership could be extended as well uh, to, to the US. Uh, and uh, that's something that obviously we will consider. We're just starting. I think by the end of the year, my hope is that we will have some deals uh, done and that we'll be able to turn and try to, to expand uh, that partnership. Well, I, I appreciate that, and, I, and it, it's good to hear that, uh, that you are making efforts in this regard, but again, I come back to um, we don't need to go to other places. Uh, we, we can focus right here at home. And I guarantee you that every ounce of this stuff that's brought out of the ground in the United States of America will be done so in a much more environmentally friendly way than it is anywhere else in the world. So if we're interested in seeing that... Uh, uh, we know we have to have these minerals. I mean, that's an absolute given. Uh, everybody preaches they want electric cars. You can't have electric cars without these uh, uh, critical minerals, uh, to, to say the least. So we really ought to be focusing more on that. And as the chairman indicated, we, we have this fragmentation between our agencies, and uh, we have agencies that are pushing for electric cars and for a clean environment and everything else, and yet we have other agencies that are doing everything they possibly can to frustrate the uh, ability of the private sector in the United States to take this stuff out of the ground and to process it well once it is out of the ground. So uh, I appreciate your efforts with, uh, with other countries. Uh, I'd say we need a diplomatic effort between your agency and uh, other agencies of the United States uh, to get to the same place on that. With that, my time is up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, Senator Carton. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank all of our witnesses for their service to our country and also their appearance here today. Uh, this hearing, the topic is extremely important to our country. U.S. national security and economic statecraft ensuring U.S. global leadership for the 21st century. It's radioactive. And we're taking a step on that today in the United States Senate uh, when we pass the Chips and Science Bill to uh, 
ensure U.S. leadership in science and recognizing the need for us to be able to manufacture our own computer chips here in the United States. China is trying to dominate. We know that. The United States can stand up against China because of our economic strength and our political strength. But so many countries around the world cannot. And they depend upon U.S. leadership in order to advance our national security through the economic system, the global system, based upon market economy rather than government-controlled decision-making. And Secretary Fernandez, uh, I was not satisfied with your answer of our, our chairman's question in regards to Lithuania. And let me explain the reason why. The question is whether we need to take a much more aggressive stand with institutional infrastructure to deal with China's coercive policies. We know their One Belt Road initiative is to try to use their economic power to intimidate countries to play according to China's rules rather than the global market economic rules. We have taken steps, and I must tell you, initiated by the legislative branch of government, on dealing with trafficking in persons to make it clear that the U.S. would stand up for a leadership structure that every country in the world needs to take steps to prevent modern-day slavery. We've taken institutional steps to deal with individual corrupt players that, uh, that allow uh, these autocratic countries to survive with the Magnitsky-type sanctions, and that's been very effective. This committee has passed a, a corruption index that would do this for corruption, to use U.S. leadership. So I think the chairman's question is, do we need that type of institutional protection against the coercive practices of China, as we saw in Lithuania? So that, yes, you can respond to what China does and try to help Lithuania through the economic institutions that exist, but shouldn't we have some type of an automatic mechanism that's available. So China understands that we won't tolerate that type of behavior on their geopolitical intimidation of another country as they did with Lithuania. I think that was the question the chairman was asking, and I didn't get really an answer to that question. So yes, we have proposals that are gonna be made by Congress, but we need to get you engaged on the subject. Because if we sit back and say it's just business as usual, we're using the bilateral uh, the mechanisms that we have and we'll respond and we'll help you here and we'll help you there. China will continue their policies. And many countries will not have that space to be able to operate while we try to figure out how we can help them. So don't we need some type of an institutional infrastructure where America's strength can stand by those countries in the world that want to exercise their independence free from the cohesion and intimidation of China? Thank you for your question, Senator. Um, it's something that we have discussed internally at the State Department, and I agree with you that it is, it is a concern. I will tell you that from, from where I stand, uh, I think it's, it's something we obviously would be willing to, to look at and consider. But at the same time, I do, I do think we need the flexibility to be able to, to, to adjust our actions to the specific circumstance. What worked in, uh, in Lithuania may not have worked in, in Japan. And so I think we do need that flexibility in order to be able to do that. But I do share your concern. 
that this is going to happen again. Uh, it, it, it's something that China is doing over and over again. Other countries have, 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 have experienced it. Uh, and I think looking at this situation holistically is worth looking at. I'll just make this observation, Mr. Chairman. If we would have waited for these negotiations to take place, we never would have passed the sanction regime against Iran. We never would have done the uh, Magnitsky sanctions. We never would have done any of these issues because we always get that response from the administration. Let's sit down and talk. We're not talking about taking away your flexibility to deal with individual circumstances. We're talking about making it clear that the United States is standing up for global leadership against this type of behavior. And unless we get greater cooperation from an administration, it's going to be more difficult for us to do it. We'll still do it. But in the meantime, China's going to act. So I would just urge you to understand the urgency of this moment, of what China's doing. We're taking action in Congress, but we can certainly use your co more enthusiastic cooperation with us to give you the tools you need in order to respond. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Fernandez, a couple of things. This week, Gazprom announced that it was reducing the supply of gas to Europe through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to just 20% of the capacity. Uh, Russia already had cut the flow of gas through Nord Stream 1 to 40% of capacity. They did that in June. Uh, facing a Russian-made energy crisis, the European Union member states took action on Tuesday. They agreed to cut gas use by 15% between August and March, compared with the same period of, of previous years. So the, uh, the European Commission president said this, that Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. Therefore, in any event, whether a, mar a partial major cutoff of Russian gas or a total cutoff of Russian gas, Europe needs to be ready. The uh, New York Times had a story, July 26, facing Putin's energy blackmail. Uh, is Russia engaged in blackmail and using energy as a weapon? Thank you for your question. The answer is yes. Okay. Russia is weaponizing oil. Uh, it is, uh, and, and, and our, our job is to help our allies and partners to uh, uh, protect uh, and reach, a, reach a, uh, energy independence. Um, and that's something that we're, we're doing every day. So the United States has the energy resources needed to help our allies reduce their dependence on Russian energy. Our nation should be a strategic energy supplier to Europe. American natural gas is reliable, affordable, abundant. Uh, it's an important energy solution for those who want to keep the lights on without empowering Russia. And President Biden said that we will sell American LNG to help our allies. Do you support increasing efforts, the State Department support efforts, to export U.S. LNG to help our allies and partners escape their dependence on Russia? Thank you for your question, Senator. I think an unstated, um, uh, a, an unspoken success here is how our oil and gas producers have stepped up to the plate uh, to deal to, to help uh, Europe, Europe deal with it with the energy crisis. Uh, our oil production in, in this year and next year will will uh, exceed the records from 2019. Uh, we are right now the largest LNG supplier uh, to, to the Europeans. Seventy-five percent of its imports are, are are from the U.S. of LNG exports. So our 
I, I think it's a success story, and we, we will do all we can to try and, and wean uh, Europe from, from Russian oil and gas, and we have to continue to, to expand exports, not just from, from the U.S., from all, but from other allies and partners, and that's something we're trying to do every day as well. So I'm, I'm curious where this stands now in terms of U.S. exports. What, what countries are you meeting with to discuss increasing exports of American LNG to help them out? Well, uh, I have met with a number of, of, of European countries that are looking to expand their imports of, um, of, of U.S. LNG. Uh, we're working as well on infrastructure in, in Europe to try and, 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 and build the kinds of facilities that will accept uh, LNG uh, exports. It seems we have infrastructure restraints at home by the administration in delaying the uh, permits for the finding, using, exploring, transporting, uh, consolidating, and then shipping overseas LNG. Well, has the State Department weighed in on those other policies of the administration which seem to be crippling our opportunities to develop more LNG? Senator, thank you for that. Um, we are right now the, the largest LNG exporter in the world. We have tripled, just this year, tripled our exports to, to, the, to Europe. I am sure we could do better on, on, on our infrastructure. But I think um, something that I, that, I, that I raise all the time with, with the U.S. companies is I'm, I'm proud of what they've been able to do to help Europe uh, meet its energy uh, needs this year. Let me move to a nuclear power. I'm concerned that the Biden administration is failing as a partner in terms of important international energy projects. Uganda, for one, is looking to build a 2,000-megawatt nuclear power facility by 2023. It would be East Africa's first nuclear power plant. In May, Uganda acquired land for the construction. Yesterday, the Ugandan president met with Russian foreign minister, the Russian foreign minister, Uganda asked Russia for help in developing the nuclear power plant. So given the extensive expertise that we have in the United States in nuclear energy, why isn't our nation partnering with Uganda on this project? And what would be the negative implications that could result from this sort of partnership between Uganda and Russia? Thank you, Senator. Uh, I, I will need to get back to you on the Uganda example. I'm not familiar with it. I will tell you this, though. Um, and we've stated it uh, often, uh, we believe nuclear power is vital to achieving the climate goals and the energy transition. Just yesterday, I met with uh, the Minister of Energy from Romania. They are looking for U.S. And nucle small nuclear reactors. We are working with them to bring, the, to bring those to, to Romania. So I'm not familiar with the Uganda example, but I will tell you that we support large and small uh, scale nuclear reactors, and we're working with a number of countries in Europe on this score, one of them being Romania, the other one being Poland. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to each of you for your testimony this morning. Um, Director Bong, I would like to begin with you, because Senator Portman and I last year introduced the Transatlantic Telecommunications Security Act. Um, and I was interested in doing that because we have done everything we can to discourage our European allies from using China's telecommunications sector, Huawei and others, um, because of concerns about what that means for security. Now, what we did in the Telecommunications Security Act was to authorize the Development Finance Corporation to invest in trusted telecommunications projects in Eastern Europe um, where 
we're encouraging countries to get off that Chinese telecommunications, but we're not providing any real help for them. Now, sadly, that legislation has gotten hung up in a philosophical debate about what the um, mission of the Development Finance Corporation should be. But what kind of help does your agency have to address that concern among our Eastern European allies? Thank you very much, Senator, for that question. Uh, we are absolutely seeing uh, China's push to foreclosed uh, uh, systems and closed integrated solutions that encourage Chinese company end-to-end -end solutions, which are bad for uh, security um, and bad for competition. Uh, so what we've done is to work through a series of workshops, reverse trade missions, and projects that can introduce uh, regulators in our partner countries, uh, procurement officials in our partner countries, uh, to the solutions that the U.S. provides. Um, it's very important for them to be able to see the options, to familiarize them with our technologies, and to do so hand-in-hand -hand with our colleagues at DFC so that we coordinate closely um, with DFC, with the Export-Import Bank and the Departments of Commerce because there is an ecosystem that follows the early project preparation to financing. So often we will convene through our workshops and our reverse trade missions where we're bringing delegations to the United States, um, and, the, and we will develop projects that can speak to our partners' ability to have choice and to understand that there is a, a more security to be had, more openness and competition, if they follow the United States solutions. And are, are we being successful at that? I think we are, Senator. Um, we are seeing, and just uh, yesterday I welcomed a delegation from Malaysia full of um, telecommunications regulators where they, uh, they expressed their openness, they expressed an understanding of what they might need to look at to address these issues so because we're in the early stages of planning and preparation, it does take time to see the, the, the change. But I do see a, a great willingness in partners to attend to the, um, the expertise that we're able to provide. Thank you. This is, question is really for all three of you. Because as we talk about economic statecraft and our ability to provide assistance and economic areas to address concerns that um, countries are having, developing countries in particular. One of, one of the aspects of that that we don't talk much about is how, how do we get the message out about what we're doing? Um, right now, I think both China and Russia are eating our lunch in terms of the ability to spread inaccurate information about the United States and what we're doing. Um, they've done it very successfully in terms of what's happening with food insecurity because of the war in Ukraine, which Russia is responsible for, and yet in countries in Africa and the Middle East, they see the United States as being the problem here. So how do you see information and getting information out about what we're doing as critical to the other work that you're doing in the economic area. And I'll start with you first, um, Secretary Fernandez. 
Thank you. Um, uh, thank you, Senator. I think you're right uh, in that both Russia and, Ch and China are engaging in a disinformation uh, battle. Uh, they have blamed the U.S. for the food insecurity caused by, by Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, and something we are doing at the State Department is focusing on that misinformation and getting out the message that our, our sanctions expressly carve out uh, uh, oil uh, and gas exports, expressly uh, do not affect uh, food, do not affect fertilizers. And, and so, I'm, I don't want to interrupt you, but are you working with the Global Engagement Center? Yes, at we the are. State Department? Yes, we are. And is, is there a, a plan for how we are responding? The, there is a plan. Uh, there is a and plan. And can that be shared with this committee? Well, of course, of course. I, I think uh, we, are, we are engaged in every day in, 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 in addressing the, the misinformation. It's hard because, uh, frankly, the Russians and the PRC are good at this. And so we've got to, we've got to up our game, but I think there's, there's certainly a strategy to, to do that, and we've, we, have, we have been doing that in the last few months. Thank you. I know I'm out of time, Mr. Chairman, so I will um, send questions for the record to all of you in response to this question, because I think it's something that we have got to get much better at and get very specific about how we're responding. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Portman. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I was interested in, in Senator Shaheen's question uh, with regard to Global Engagement Center. Um, uh, I continue to have a deep concern that we don't have somebody there on a permanent basis leading that organization at a time when its mission is so important. And um, so I hope you'll take that message back, uh, Mr. Secretary. And, uh, you know, Leah Bray is the acting, but Senator Shaheen, can you think of a more important time for us to actually coordinate our efforts in terms of fighting Absolutely. back against this disinformation and the fact that the State Department can't do the simple step of appointing somebody permanently to that and giving it a higher status um, at a time when we're trying to get more funding into that agency is, is a mystery to me. It's not a confirmed position. Um, so, Secretary Fernandez, uh, Senator Shaheen and I were just at uh, your alma mater for a reunion. and. Uh, she spoke eloquently about the issues in Ukraine, uh, and, and I tried to keep up. But uh, there was a lot of interest. Everybody showed up because, you know, this is the crisis of our times in terms of the ability to defend democracy and freedom against tyranny and authoritarianism, and in this case, you know, a brutal conquest. Um, so it is a time where the economic statecraft, you know, is mixed with uh, the diplomacy that we are normally more engaged in. And, Specifically, you know, right now the UN has worked out this arrangement with Turkey and Russia and Ukraine, uh, apparently to be able to allow some of this grain to be able to go, including to places like Africa where people are literally starving uh, with this global food crisis. And yet within 12 hours of that agreement being penned, which said that Russia would not uh, attack any export facilities at any of the uh, Ukrainian ports that were under discussion, they, they bombed Odessa. Uh, with four missiles, two of which got through. And uh, yesterday, uh, night before last, I was on the floor of the Senate with a photograph showing the bombing and, and the impact of it. So obviously not to be trusted, and that's the kind of message we need to get out to ensure people do not believe the, the, the Russian disinformation in places like Africa. Uh, but do you have any update on that, uh, Secretary Fernandez, where we are with regard to uh, stopping uh, the Russian attacks on the port, certainly, but then more importantly, getting this grain out to the rest of the world? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. And I'm glad you mentioned our alma mater. Um, 
look, we, Russia is, is using food as a weapon. We know that. Um, and it's blaming the U.S. for the consequences. Um, just the, the U.N. tells us that since the invasion of Ukraine, we've, we've got an additional 70 million people around the world that have fallen into poverty. Um, we welcomed, uh, we welcomed the, the, the agreement. Uh, at the same time, we just don't trust Putin. And I think the, the, uh, the, the events that you described show that we have to, uh, we have to be careful. Um, we, what we have done on, on, on food security is, um, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've provided almost $5 billion worth of food aid around the world. Uh, we've convened the food security ministerial, which attracted over 100 countries to talk about what we're going to do to try and deal with this crisis. We are uh, every day. Uh, I, I tell people that I, I wake up thinking about Ukraine, I, I go to sleep thinking about Ukraine, and in between we try and help Ukraine. And, 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 and it's the food security issue goes beyond Ukraine, and it shows, uh, and this goes to the misinformation point, that this is not just a European, uh, a European uh, um, problem. It's, uh, the, the, the effects of, of, of Putin's invasion and brutality in Ukraine affects the entire uh, the entire world, and well, you've seen I, that I, in Africa as well. I agree. My, my, my time is limited here, so let me, let me get into another result of what Russia chose to do, and it was a war of choice, this brutal invasion, and that's on the energy front. And you're right, it's affecting the entire globe in terms of energy prices, but specifically our European allies. Those in the region, I was in Moldova and Romania recently, their biggest issue they raised with me, apart from the Russian invasion generally, is energy. And my understanding is that uh, despite some good work U.S. TDA has done, uh, Directory Bong, that the Development Finance Corporation, as an example, has self-imposed restrictions that hinders their efforts to work on all energy sectors, including liquefied natural gas. Is that possible? I mean, we're telling the Europeans, stop depending on Russia for your liquefied natural gas. Instead, we'll provide you some. And some of our agencies are being told that they can't work on liquefied natural gas uh, because it's a fossil fuel, even though it's cleaner than the alternative, and even though we're begging the Europeans to do the right thing and stop feeding the war machine with sending $870 million a day, which is roughly what they send for oil and gas. Um, is that true? Can I hear from, from either one of you about that? You want me to take it? All right, I'll, I'll take it. And I'll, um, look, the, 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 let me be clear. The DFC is not prohibited, not prohibited from energy uh, from these kinds of projects. It's, uh, what, what we have done is instituted an a, a additional review for any carbon intensive project. So the answer to your question, Senator, is no, there, are not, there is no prohibition. I will tell you this, and this is something I said earlier. We are now the largest exporter of LNG to Europe. We have tripled our exports this year. 75% yeah. of our LNG exports. Are they allowed to work on nuclear power? Or is that also subject to restrictions and further review? Okay. I mean, I'm in Romania, and they're begging for us to help them with these SMRs, with these right. small nuclear reactors. They want the Export-Import Bank, which is not represented here today, uh, as DFC is not, unfortunately, because I'd like to talk to both of them. But mm -hmm. we have got to help Romania with this. And it's absolutely essential to Moldova also, which is obviously in a very vulnerable position. So anyway. I appreciate the testimony today and, and echo the comments of some of my colleagues and in terms of us having a, a more aggressive and realistic uh, economic uh, aspect to our diplomacy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Coons. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, uh, and our uh, panel of witnesses. And 
Uh, Chairman Menendez, I am uh, very uh, encouraged by your focus on economic coercion, your uh, legislative leadership on this, and look forward to working with you closely on it. Um, I think uh, you've brought a real focus in the work on this committee to uh, not just studying or thinking about um, what we need to do strategically and what tools we need, but then delivering um, those results so that we can um, strengthen the hand of our partners, uh, diplomats, uh, development professionals, um, and I'm excited to work with you on your economic statecraft in the 21st Century Act. Um, I, I have recently introduced a bill, the Countering Economic Coercion Act, uh, with Senator Young. Uh, I view them as complementary, uh, and I'm very hopeful that we can work together to move both of these pieces of legislation. Uh, we have both seen uh, ways in which uh, Russia and China and other um, states um, deliberately inflict economic uh, damage, economic harm on some of our partners and allies and uh, countries that are uh, at an uncertain point. They use economic power to punish or bully or influence uh, sovereign states uh, in our hemisphere and around the world, um, sometimes through informal pressure, intimidation or threats, sometimes through formal actions. And um, it harms our national security interests, our economy, and undermines um, international rules. Um, the chairman's bill would establish an interagency task force to develop a strategy to, to counter economic coercion, and I enthusiastically support that. Uh, and my bill would provide the president with new tools to offer rapid and, I would argue, effective economic support uh, to our partners um, targeted by economic coercion. For example, uh, many of us... Um, have offered our support for Lithuania uh, in recent months. President Biden has voiced support for Lithuania. Uh, the bill I'm trying to move forward would add tools to the president's toolkit um, to make such support not just um, in words but in deeds uh, by targeting specific tariff reductions, by uh, expediting decisions on uh, relaxing uh, import restrictions or export restrictions, uh, offering greater flexibility for export financing, um, so my question for all three panelists today would be, um, what additional tools and authorities uh, would help your agencies to respond effectively and quickly um, to support countries that have been targeted with economic coercion? If you would, uh, please, uh, Mr. Fernandez. Thank you for your question, Senator. Um, I, I'm not... Uh I will defer to our legislative colleagues in terms of, of, of comments on the bill, but I will tell you... Were you unaware that I was going to ask you about this in today's hearing? Um, I, I was not, but I'm happy to... But I, I will tell you that we have been working on, uh, uh, on economic coercion. I personally have been to Lithuania. We have supported Lithuania. We have developed tools, and I think we, we need a discussion on what, to, what tools? Well, I'm interested in more than a discussion. I'd like to hear what additional tools you think are necessary. Please. Well, I, I will tell you what we did, if I may. Uh, number one is we, we doubled, together with our colleagues at Exxon, we doubled the credit financing that, that China took away from Lithuania, number one. We brought business delegations, uh, several business delegations to Lithuania looking for more uh, investment from the U.S. They're very interested, for example, in lasers. That's something Lithuania mm -hmm is very keen on. Uh, we have, they wanted to export uh, agricultural products. We've talked to USDA about finding ways to, to expedite some of those reviews without endangering, obviously, the American people. There are things we could do. I, I think we have to have a discussion on what additional tools we have. I will tell you that we know we have some existing tools now that we didn't know we could use. And so I think, uh, I think this is a discussion that will continue because, as I've said earlier, 
the, the economic coercion will, will, will happen again. It's happened before, and this is a tool that the, that the PRC will continue to use. Well, I would argue, uh, I agree with you. Um, they have been, they are, they will. Uh, Russia is using economic coercion right now uh, as a tool of its um, unprovoked and, and um, immoral aggression against Ukraine. Um, the cut in Nord Stream 1 volume, there's a lot of different ways where they're using uh, food as a weapon of war, energy as a weapon of war. Um, the example of the Lithuania, I think, is a, a poignant one, but I, I look forward to hearing from you concretely and specifically what additional tools you think the administration needs. Ms. Bong, if you would, on behalf of TDA. Thank you, Senator. Um, I would take in Lithuania just a quick example to get to that answer, which is USTDA did the project preparation work, the feasibility work for the Klaipeda LNG import terminal. We did that in 2009. It came on board in 2014 um, and is now supplying other countries uh, in the region. We could do that then uh, because Lithuania is a middle-income country. Uh, to the degree that it's a high-income country, USTDA uh, is not authorized to work there. So that would be an example of, given the geostrategic uh, uh, considerations, something that we might look at with respect to USTDA's authorities. Uh, more broadly, USTDA is seeing uh, far more demand than, than we can respond to. Uh, so I, I think that in the other category of uh, the agency's needs, um, the response to the President's ask uh, for our 23 budget would allow us to um, avoid the situation that we're in now, where in July we're saying to um, very good projects that should be stood up, we cannot do that until the next fiscal year. Thank you. Well, I appreciate your advocacy for your uh, agency's budget request and um, look forward to hearing from you in specific ways about both how raising the income threshold uh, might allow a more timely response to coercion. If I could, Mr. Chairman, the last witness briefly. Mr. Bacol, if you would briefly, on behalf of Treasury, anything about additional tools, and then I'll conclude. Thank you, Senator. Uh, fully agree that this is a very uh, important topic. We are engaged in conversations with a number of our partners and allies on, on this issue, and, and I think as a result of those discussions, may come back to you with uh, ideas for additional tools. At the current time, of course, we have some carrot and stick tools at Treasury. The stick, of course, is largely involving sanctions, and I think our authorities there are, are pretty robust at the moment. On the carrot side, um, we work through, of course, the international financial institutions to, to support countries uh, that are uh, our friends as much as possible, as well as through other agencies, including DFC and, and others. Thank you. Thank you. I'll submit questions for the record and look forward to a prompt response. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank all of you for your testimony. Um, very briefly, I'd like to second what Senator Kuhn said about needing a strategy. Uh, whether we need additional tools, we hope you'll get back to us about, but uh, we need to send a very clear signal to countries around the world that uh, when they are pressured uh, by China, Russia, or other adversaries, uh, and those countries are uh, trying to you know, put demands on them that those countries don't want to meet, that in addition to the possibility of a stick on those that are uh, putting pressure on, uh, we, we want a carrot uh, so that those countries can know in advance, and in advance is an important part of it, uh, that there will be help from the United States and others 
a multilateral group uh, because that will strengthen their resolve in resisting uh, coercion. Um, let, me, let me just turn to how we approach um, some of the economic statecraft from a, a budget perspective in terms of government spending. You know, decades ago, if you looked at our portfolio of international assistance, uh, it would have included a lot of uh, infrastructure projects. You go around the world, you could see dams, you could see schools, you could see visible uh, manifestations of um, the United States uh, commitment. Um, understandably, and there are good reasons, we have moved toward other approach overall, meaning uh, we have very robust uh, public health programs. That's a good thing uh, in Africa and other parts of the world. Uh, we have a lot of focus on education. Uh, that also is a good thing. So I'm not talking about displacing those programs, but it does seem to me that when we're looking at countries like China that are deploying infrastructure, for example, Huawei deploying 5G, places like Africa, um, we need to get much more in the game on that kind of infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, I'm surprised maybe it came up. I didn't see it in any of the written comments, but the president just made a major announcement uh, about the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. Uh, my understanding is that is the Biden administration's proposal for multilateral action. I am a little surprised that we haven't heard more of it about it uh, here this morning. Um, $600 billion over the next five years, designed to do, I think, exactly the kind of things we're talking about, which is to uh, make investments um, in countries around the world where that investment uh, is, is called for and needed. So, um, Under Secretary Fernandez, can you, can you talk a little bit about how this is going to be implemented, when it's going to be implemented, where the resources are today? Thank you for your question. Uh, on Lithuania, if I may, just for just because you mentioned it, we are. I, I forgot to mention that we are um, uh, doing conducting a an interagency review of what we did in Lithuania. We will have conclusions on it, and I'd be happy to brief you and and others on, on the conclusions that we come up with on, on infrastructure. You're right. Uh, we. Uh, the PRC uh, and others are, are in many ways eating our have been eating our lunch on infrastructure around the world. And oftentimes, I, on my travels, I will, I will go to a country in Africa and the Chinese will be there, the Turks will be there, others will be there, no US companies. We've got to get in the game. The, the, the Partnership for Infrastructure Investment is the president's uh, plan to do exactly that. 600 million, it, it, it is going to be coordinated from the State Department. We're working as we speak right now. We are, um, we are looking at a number of investments in, in, in Africa. Right now, the DFC head is in Africa looking at projects, and I think uh, you will see an, an, an emphasis on this going forward in, in the near future. We have to engage in a race to, to the top, which means that our infrastructure offer has to be something that is better than what the Chinese and others offer. Yeah, I think it's 600 billion over five years is the goal, together with um, some of our G7 and, and, and European partners. Uh, and is that have we been working already with our European partners as to how this joint infrastructure facility um, is going to be deployed in, in, the, in the near term? Uh, the, yes, we have. Uh, it's, it's been part of the G7 discussions uh, that have taken place several, for, for several of, those, uh, of those meetings okay. in, in the last year. Um, if you could just... Um, follow up by providing uh, me, other members of the committee that are interested with a much more detailed 
uh, report about how this fund, which as I understand it is a big part of the answer to the questions that I think are raised by this hearing, um, how this fund uh, is going to be assembled and deployed, um, and not just in concept, but in reality on the ground and what the timetable is. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, Senator Kane, my apologies. Um, I, I was looking at Senator Van Hollen, didn't see you come back to your seat. You no, been next. no worries. I always thank enjoy you. hearing Senator Van Hollen. Okay. And it's, good, and it's good to, good to have the witnesses here. Um, I want to just dig into probably some issues mostly in the Western Hemisphere, which are, is a passion of mine. I, I visited with a number of senators, Senator Lasso and uh, President Lasso in Ecuador last July, shortly after he had become president. The government was new. And one of the things he said is, you know, after, after about 30 years of having a government that was very oriented toward China, the Ecuadorian people in elections basically said they're ripping us off. There were infrastructure projects that were bad. There was environmental despoliation in the Amazon. There's illegal fishing around the Galapagos, which as you know is part of Ecuador. And so the Ecuadorian people decided we want to change direction and they embraced a president who is very favorable to the United States and they also turned out 70% of the National Assembly. We asked him how could we be helpful and he said one of the things you could most do to be helpful would be to allow Ecuador to come into a trade deal with the United States. For example, could we, could we be an add-on to the trade deal that the U.S. has with Colombia? And he said that he had made that request of the administration as well. Are, are we doing anything a year later to think about incorporating Ecuador uh, into any trade agreements that the U.S. has in the hemisphere? Thank you for your question. I, I, I share your passion as well. Um, we, we are, I, I speak to the Ecuadorians all the time. In fact, I met with their new Minister of the Economy last week. They are interested in investment. Uh, at the Summit of the Americas, President Biden announced that the Americas Partnership for Economic Prosperity, APEP, which is going to be our, our, our signature uh, framework to, to help uh, uh, um, investment and trade and, and, and increase our, improve our economic relations with, uh, with not just Ecuador, but with the region as well. It's, um, we've, we've, got, we've got a number of issues that go beyond trade. I, th I think all of the countries, uh, in many of the countries in the region suffer from high inequality, issues of corruption, uh, low tax rates that do not allow them to have a functioning government at times. Um, and I think we're gonna work on, uh, on infrastructure, we are going to work on um, dealing with um, uh, dealing with some of the issues that were unveiled by COVID. The fact that, for example, the public health net uh, frameworks are, are weak. Uh, the fact that in, in many of the can, can I, I, I I'm all for public health. I'm yeah. completely into that. The, the question that I really want to dig mm -hmm. into is, it seems to me that the administration is sort of against trade deals. I, I'm a pro-trade guy. I'm a state. You know, I'm from a state that has one of the largest ports on the East Coast. I'm from a state that's gone from bottom per capita income to top, bottom quartile per capita income to top quartile per capita income in my lifetime. And it's largely been because we've embraced immigration and we've embraced trade and used assets like our port and Dulles to connect with the world. Um, but it, it's just in the first year and a half of the administration, it just seems like trade isn't a priority. Um, 
in the past, nations like China have just beat us on infrastructure deals. I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to put enough dollars on the table to match up with them. But what we've, de we've done is we've leveraged our private economy and tried to do trade in order to improve relationships. This is what Ecuador is asking for. This is what Uruguay is asking for. And you can do trade deals the right way. We renegotiated NAFTA after 20 years. It got a huge bipartisan vote uh, in the Senate, in the House, and was approved. And the standards that were OK 20 years ago aren't OK now, so we upped them. We could do the same thing with existing trade deals. Um, and I'm just, I, I am just puzzled that when we have deals like this on the table, uh, Chile, we have a trade deal with Chile. President Boric, I was with the Chilean ambassador yesterday. We would really like to get into that trade deal and make it better. So I, I hope we don't um, unilaterally disarm in an area where we have traditionally had an edge over China and others in trade with, with our robust private sector. I hope we don't just kind of leave that undone when we have allies who need our help who are asking precisely for that, and they say that's what could help them be successful for their populations. Now, to a positive, uh, the Alliance for Democracy and Development, which was announced months ago by Dominican Republic, Panama, Costa Rica, three nations saying, look, there's democratic backsliding in our region. We want to be pro-democracy and forward lean. Ecuador has recently announced that they're joining the alliance. And um, just, it might have been two days ago, the Department of State announced that this ADD, uh, a U.S. ADD consultative dialogue on supply chains and economic growth to look at supply chain resiliency, uh, nearshoring. This is an exciting uh, opportunity, and I'm really excited to see like-minded democracies in the region, you know, come together to promote democracy and also promote economic growth for their people. Could you talk about um, this particular initiative and how the State Department and the U.S. might use this framework to advance uh, economic uh, prosperity in these countries. Thank you for your question, Senator. Um, um, and thank you for the compliment. I signed that MOU. I've been working on that for a year. It was uh, Originally, it was just an idea on the part of the, of the three original countries. Uh, Costa Rica, Panama, and, and, and the Dominican Republic to work together on supply chains. You know, every day uh, I, get, I get a call from somebody in Latin America that says, we can be your supply chain partner. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, uh, what we, the challenge is to make that a reality. So what we've done is we are, we, together with the Chamber of Commerce, we are identifying specific pr uh, products where we could, those products would come from Asia and, and, and be, be manufactured, assembled in different places in Latin America. The, the ad uh, program, ADD, is one that, that has another benefit, which is they would cooperate. These are countries mm -hmm. that typically haven't cooperated. They've competed with each other, but they haven't cooperated. So this, this is a, a two-way benefit, both mm -hmm. on the supply chain, the assuring, and on, on their cooperation. I'm very excited about it. Uh, our hope is that by the end of the year, we will have identified specific projects. Uh, and, we, and they've created a business council that will come up with ideas. So uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful and I'm, I'm frankly very, uh, very proud of the work that the State Department has done on that. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. The distinguished junior senator from New Jersey, Senator Booker. I'm, I am very grateful, uh, Mr. Chairman. I, I know you've already discussed it a little bit, but I'd like to jump back to issues of food uh, insecurity globally. <clears throat> Russia has been insidiously uh, strategic in how 
They've been working to disrupt uh, global food supplies. And as you know, Ukraine and, and Russia have been, uh, before this conflict, have been major supporters of some uh, 38 countries. In fact, 38 countries uh, rely on Russia, Ukraine for about 30% of their wheat uh, imports uh, alone. And, uh, you know, some of these countries are very reluctant, in fact, to criticize Russia because of their deep dependence. And so I'm wondering um, uh, if you all might be willing to sort of talk a little bit more in depth about what economic tools the United States has to incentivize a lot of these mid- and low-income uh, countries who've been relying on Russian imports uh, to diversify their agricultural and energy supplies, and what economic tools do we have to help develop uh, really uh, stronger local internal food systems so their reliance is not there in the future? And maybe uh, Director Ibang. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, so at USTDA, we are focused on uh, strengthening and developing infrastructure uh, so that we can export U.S. goods services uh, to the infrastructure that we, we help develop. In the food and agriculture space, uh, that really pertains to might be port infrastructure um, so that uh, countries can export or perhaps cold chain uh, food supply so that agricultural produce produce can get to uh, to the ports. Uh, so the, our our engagement in the space is ancillary uh, to food production and food supply, but absolutely focused on being able to facilitate countries' movement of their produce and their supplies once they get to that point. Okay, and. Uh uh, Mr. Secretary Fernandez, what about your, you and thoughts? Thank you for your question. Uh, my office has been um, deeply involved in, in, in on the food security crisis, and, and you're right. Um, you know, it's not surprising that we have a food security crisis when when Ru uh, Russia and Ukraine accounted for 10 to 15 percent of agricultural exports around the world. So, and 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 many countries are you know the, the Russia Russia's misinformation is succeeding. Uh, at blaming the U.S. Uh, what are we doing about it? First of all, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have provided almost $5 billion worth of food aid. Uh, in May, uh, Secretary Blinken convened a ministerial of, of over 100 countries to work on food security issues and put it on the agenda and also talk about what we're going to do in terms of uh, making sure that, that there are no export restrictions on food and that we're helping countries go forward. Um, we have a, USAID is deeply involved, and they're not here today, but they are, uh, they are deeply involved in the food security space as well, and in our own Feed the Future uh, program, uh, and we have an agricultural office in, at, at the State Department that I, Mr. That Secretary, I oversee. If, I can, if you allow me to interrupt, so, no, I, we, you know, I've met with uh, uh, Ambassador Powers uh, yeah. and, and with a number of people from this committee. We met yesterday with talking with other, other ambassadors from other countries about upping their aid. I guess really what I'm trying to drill down on is that we have a bit of a crisis, number one, with the capacity of a lot of these mid-level economies. We have other countries now that are, are trying to shut down their exports. So India's uh, decisions is only going to contribute to that. And I'm wondering what other tools, besides the billions of dollars that we worked uh, on the Senate side very hard to make sure that we were upping our aid in and of itself, I'm just wondering what other tools should we be looking at that can help to deal with what a crisis that I see spiraling. You've got fertilizer uh, uh, crises, which doesn't just implicate now, it implicates next year. 
Uh, you've got other countries beginning to hoard their own resources. This crisis is going to get worse before it gets better. The $5 billion that we put in is, is significant. We're trying to get our other allies to do the same. But I, I see uh, uh, humanity really never have faced the kind of crisis we could face over the coming two years. Thank you. I, I share your concern. And I think uh, we've, got to, we've got to do more on, on uh, working against uh, export bans. Uh, we've got to do more to promote agriculture. In, in, in Africa, for example, we're working on a program on, on, on seeds that, that would be climate resistant, that would deal with climate change. So there's more that we could do. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to get a more, and I'll, I'll ask a question for the record. Uh, Senator Book, I see Mr. Boko is looking to help uh, in answering your question. I did not so. see that, sir. Thank yes. you very much. The eagle eye of my senior senator, uh, please. Uh, uh, Thank you, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Senator, for this for this question. I think we uh, share your deep concerns about uh, food insecurity uh, at the time at this time. I just wanted to flag that uh, Secretary Yellen uh, early this spring had a uh, meeting with um, the heads of the international financial institutions, including all the multilateral development banks, asked them to come up with ideas to address this issue. They have all uh, provided action plans to us, which we're happy to share with you, uh, that aim to provide some immediate financing so that people don't um, uh, go hungry in the near term, but also uh, make investments for the medium term to help promote uh, production in Africa and other places. Uh, and we're very focused on following up on, on those action plans to make sure they get implemented. That's tremendous. I would, love to, I would love to follow up on that and hear any other ideas of things that uh, this body can work on uh, to help support. So thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, as always. Thank you, Senator Booker. Um, I have one or two final questions. Uh, let me, um, uh, Mr. Bocco, uh, uh, we talked a little bit about SDRs before. As I understand it, the United States is leading a push around the world for richer countries to transfer their extra SDRs to the IMF. Are other countries considering making contributions to these facilities at the IMF? Yes, thank you, uh, Chair. Yes, at uh, the present moment, my uh, list of countries that are planning to channel uh, resources to the IMF for either the Poverty Reduction Growth Trust, so the low-income window, or the new Resilience and Sustainability Trust. There's a list of about a little over a dozen countries, including all the other G7 countries, including uh, a few other Europeans, including uh, Spain and Netherlands, uh, Australia, as well as um, a couple uh, emerging markets, China, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, total amount of commitments from these other countries is on the order of $58 billion or so for these uh, two trust funds. Mm -hmm. uh, is there an urgency for the United States to quickly authorize uh, this transfer on our part? Indeed, I, I, I would say there definitely is. We, we've been leading, uh, trying to lead at these institutions, including the IMF, uh, on things like the design of this new Resilience and Sustainability Trust, which aims to help countries deal with the balance of payments impacts of investments in uh, pandemic resiliency, in energy security, uh, including the impacts of climate. 
Uh, and we, we uh, in order to maintain our leadership role, really need to authorize our, our loans to, these, uh, uh, to the IMF uh, as soon as we can. Well, I've included this authorization in the two economic statecraft bills that I mentioned earlier, and I hope the committee can find a way to pass uh, this critical authorization quickly so we can continue to lead in the global economy. I have one other question for you. In South Asia, we see two different stories playing out right now. In Sri Lanka, the government has defaulted on $50 billion in loans to international creditors. Now it's trying to negotiate a long-term loan from the IMF while also figuring out how to pay for daily food and fuel. By contrast, Pakistan just concluded a staff-level agreement with the IMF that lets the government begin to pay down its debt despite recent political turmoil. What, do we, what can we learn from these two cases about the IMF, about how the IMF is thinking about systemic debt risk in the developing world? Thank you, Chair. That's an interesting question. Um, the IMF uh, takes a case-by-case -case approach on, on debt issues, uh, uh, recognizing that not one size will fit all for all countries. Uh, and, and we generally support that approach. In, in the case of, of Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka's uh, debt sustainability is um, seriously in question. And uh, as part of an IMF program in the coming weeks and months, we expect that uh, some debt treatment will be necessary to, to put debt back on a sustainable basis. That will mean working, of course, with uh, other major creditors, which will include China, uh, which will be a challenge, and uh, we will uh, be pressing China to uh, respond uh, quickly to requests for debt relief in this case, uh, and it will require working with other creditors as well. In the case of Pakistan, their, their debt situation uh, is more uh, manageable. As, as you mentioned, they're uh, under their program going to be able to uh, pay down debt over time, uh, and uh, so um, that seems appropriate for now. Mm -hmm. I understand that not one size fits all, but it would be uh, a value to have a global vision of the IMF versus how it's going to deal with the challenges that developing nations have in the midst of the triple whammy that they are facing. So, um, finally, uh, at the G7 last month, as has been referenced, uh, President Biden uh, uh, touted the role of the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, a values-driven, high-impact, transparent infrastructure partnership to meet the enormous infrastructure needs of low- and middle-income countries and support the U.S. and its allies' economic and national security plan. So I support the President's global infrastructure plan. Look forward to finding ways to assist in its success. Uh, Director Yvonne, um, what role will the U.S. Trade and Development Agency play in ensuring this program is beneficial to everyday Americans and uh, Secretary Fernandez, what role will the State Department play in developing this new partnership? Thank you, Chair. Um, it's very critical uh, that we focus on our role of preparing projects that will help to support jobs and, and create exports in the United States. The Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, or PGII, uh, allows us very much the platform to do that. Uh, projects that we have already worked on in the last year and that we will be working on in the future very much feed into the President's pledge and commitments in PGII. 
AI. So we will be able to bring that angle of projects that are um, uh, implementable, but that will also benefit everyday Americans because they will be projects that uh, US goods and services can be exported to, therefore support jobs in this country. Uh, the benefit also that PGII is going to bring is additional sources of financing. Uh, and so that will speed the implementation of projects. Again, uh, that will redound to the benefit of Americans because we, in USTDA's uh, projects, uh, be making sure that they can uh, result in uh, US exports and therefore jobs. Um. Well, the first thing we have to offer is our embassies uh, and our economic offices around the world uh, that will have their, their ear to the ground and projects that are needed in, 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 in countries around the world. Uh, we're also working with the DFC. Uh, as I mentioned, the secretary chairs the board of the, of the DFC, and we will uh, continue to work with them to, to finance projects. Oftentimes, that is the, that is the, the, the obstacle that we, uh, our, our companies cannot get financing, and so we will, uh, we will continue to work on that, and also with the private sector. That's something that, that I'm personally involved in, in reaching out to our banks and, and letting them know about the opportunities that exist for infrastructure around the world. Um, and obviously, with the G7 partners, it's something that's been discussed, continues to be discussed. Sure. We coordinate uh, with, the, with the Europeans as part of the Trade and Technology Council. There are a number of four well, we will coordinate to make sure that we are not uh, stepping over each other, and that we are, and that we are, uh, we're able to uh, use our resources wisely. Yep. Thank yep. you. Yep. Uh, well, we look forward to working with you in ways to effectuate some of the goals the president announced. Um, uh, one final question to you, Secretary Fernandez. We we've talked about different members have talked a little bit about nearshoring. I see this as a uh, incredible opportunity to create more diverse, resilient, and secure supply chains. I also see it as an incredible opportunity to develop economies in our southern hemisphere, which inures to our benefit. More better economies means greater stability, less likely of people uh, moving uh, and fleeing from their countries. Uh, the ripple effect in so many dimensions is, is so significant. Uh, what exactly is our vision on nearshoring? What specific details on the, speci on the specific steps you and the administration are taking to actually make this concept a reality? Senator, thank you. That, that, that is the challenge. That is the challenge. We have, we have great intentions, but we've got to make them a reality right now. Uh, we have, the, as, the, as part of, of, the, of the president's announcement on APEP, uh, we're looking at specifics. For example, the, uh, the IDB has come out with a study on specific products. Countries, uh, the, the three countries that, uh, that I just mentioned earlier, the ADD countries, they will come up with a list of products. We need to come up with products uh, that, were, uh, that can be moved uh, from Asia nearer to us and that where the, the Latin American nations can contribute. For example, uh, COVID vaccines. Uh, Brazil would be a, uh, is a place that we've been looking at uh, with, um, uh, with Mexico, semiconductors. So uh, it, it, we've got to get specific, and that's what we're in the process of doing now. And I'll be happy to provide you more information on that 
as we as we work uh, towards identifying specific product products and specific ways to incentivize the production of those products in in in. in in, in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I'd be very interested in, in, uh, in, in some of your follow-up, and uh, we may have our own ideas. Uh, I do, uh, as, a, as a closing comment, I do hope that we will more robustly use the IDB. You know, you have an executive director who actually has marginalized the Chinese. The Chinese had the IDB being used as their sales agent in the Western Hemisphere. Mind-boggling. The IDB used to have trade shows for the Chinese in the Western Hemisphere. The IDB allowed China uh, to basically run across the hemisphere to the detriment of our national interests, our national security, and our national economy. I must say, this executive director has largely marginalized the, uh, the Chinese in the IDB, taking a lot of heat for it, but it's the right thing to do because they are not good players. And yet for some reason, the administration seems reticent, even though this executive director has been forthcoming, got a whole plan, probably has more insights because nobody spends more time Latin America specific than the IDB. Uh, uh, with, with an agenda that generally the, I think the administration would embrace. I just hope we can get past the personalities and start thinking about what is in our interest. Uh, it certainly is in our interest to go back to the days where China uh, was basically using the IDB, which we largely fund, by the way, uh, to their advantage and to our detriment. So that should be heralded, but most importantly, the entity should be used. Um, with that, uh, and the appreciation of the committee for your appearance and testimony today, this, this record will remain open to the close of business of tomorrow, and this hearing is adjourned.